1: Where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Chelsea Beaker. Chelsea is the author of the novel Godshot and the story collection Cowboys and Angels, which will be published in 2022. Her writing has been published by the Paris Review, Granta, McSweeney's, Lit Hub, Electric Literature, and others. She's the recipient of a Rona Jaffe Writers Award and a McDowell Colony Fellowship. Originally from California's Central Valley, she now lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband and two children where she teaches writing. Welcome, Chelsea.
2: Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. It's just a joy to be here today.
1: And a joy to have you and to talk about your incredible novel. Um, I, I particularly adore when I get to interview a novelist um, because I'm so interested in how our experiences come out even in fiction but not directly you know not not straight on. Um, I I was telling you before we went on that I've also written a novel uh, that comes out of my experience so I'm, I'm particularly grateful to be talking about that today.
2: Yes when you contacted me I was so excited to be able to talk about you know, as a fiction writer, you're often just talk, asked about the writing process. And I was so excited to have this really deep conversation about the emotional part that goes into our art and, and how prevalent that is. So I'm just so happy to be
1: here. Absolutely. I, I, I want to share with the listeners what, um, how I found you, which was that you had an article called Mother Lost, That Thing You Cannot Escape at LitHub. Hub, uh, and interestingly, I somehow missed subscribing to that. So it was the first thing I saw when I subscribed was your mm-hmm. article. And uh, I just wanted to share a little bit of what particularly drew me. This is a quote from you. I wrote a novel about a girl abandoned by her mother after she falls in love with a man she meets over the phone. The facts of the novel are fabricated in almost all ways but it's true that my mother left me in a similar fashion. As I wrote, I thought I was writing about religious cults. I was thought I was writing about phone sex operators, about drought and global warming, about birth and motherhood, California, about teenage lust, assault, incest. I, incest. Excuse me. I didn't know for years, for years that I, that really stuck out for me. That while I was writing about those things, mainly, mainly, I was writing about the thing I can't escape my own mother loss. And maybe you can share that story for people of your own loss that experience early on in your life that um, having read the novel, I can see how it made its way into some of the pages into many of the pages.
2: Yeah, definitely. So just for context, you know, when I was nine years old, my mother left and essentially never came back. she was a really complicated woman who had a lot of addiction issues and there was so much going on. She'd been the victim of domestic violence for years and years and years. All these things I can see in adulthood um, with so much clarity and I can understand her in these new ways, the older I get. But you know, as a child, it was it felt just that this simple black and white loss had occurred where one day she was, with me. And then the next day she wasn't. So I didn't know that I was experiencing loss though. And I didn't know at all to call it grief until I was an adult. Um, I just felt like those words didn't apply to someone who hadn't died.
1: Um, A common misconception. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then now through so much processing and so much therapy and various things that I've done to kind of you know, help myself through the residual trauma that comes with a childhood like that. Um, I have adopted a language to it. And I know now that, that you do experience grief um, when you experience that. And it was a hard loss because there was always, there was no finality to anything. There was always this hope that I carried that perhaps she would come back or perhaps the situation would rewrite itself. And I think When you're living like that all the time for years and years, there's, it breeds a lot of anxiety and it breeds a sort of sense that things are just never okay.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course,
2: once I turned 18, that time was up. I knew that, that just technically, you know, the court mandated custody stuff, all of that was gone. And I knew that our time had finished, that she had missed my whole childhood. And that was devastating. And it continues to be devastating in its own ways. But, you know, that that loss for me, I think I started writing early on as a way to not only record my experiences, because I think as the child of alcoholics, you can kind of feel like, are these things really happening? You know, am I the mm-hmm. only one that's tuned into reality? Um and there was the impulse to write it down, but also there became the impulse to create some kind of meaning out of this pain that I carried. I wanted it to, I, I don't know what that says about me, but I wanted it to do something. I was like, this can't just be a useless devastation. I want to make something out of it. And I think that's why I became a writer.
1: that That's so uh, meaningful to me because you, uh, if I think about what contributes to people that I work with, I'm a therapist most in in my non-radio show host life. And what contributes the most to people finding their ways to a better, more authentic life, a you know, a healing, as it were, it's that. it's It's feeling you can make meaning and go forward to something. And so that, uh, and of course, many people do that out of difficult times, but it's, it's not an advertised fact, is it? No,
2: definitely not. And in the part of the essay that you read, you know, there was still an unawareness around what I was doing as I was crafting this novel, where I think a part of me wanted to imagine that I wasn't going to just write, you know, what had happened to me. I wanted to be divorced of it. Often in my life, I've wanted to just switch into a different reality, you know, like it's a heavy load to carry. And sometimes I just want to set it down and be like, that's not me. That's not my whole identity. But I knew, I knew that the heart of this book was about that mother daughter relationship and subsequent loss. And any dodging I was doing of that was not going to make for good fiction. I just knew that without it the purpose of what I was doing wasn't going to come through to a reader and I think it would have lost something some emotional connection if I had just kind of you know written a novel about some guy living in New York City that had a great relationship with his mom or something you know that just was (laughs) never going to be the book I was going to write
1: so. (laughs) Well, I I also, you know, I've always called myself a grief counselor, but in this time of COVID, I actually have been more, more, um, I've, I've kind of changed that a bit to say that I'm a grief and resiliency counselor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it feels to me like you share with your character, perhaps, this searching for some way to... Uh, to go forward, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of stubbornness that some of us have to uh, find our way forward even in very bleak circumstances. Um, I don't know what leads to that or makes it strong enough in a person that that it ends up helping in life, but it's so uh, powerful and and evident when someone has that impulse.
2: Yeah. You know, I remember in childhood feeling that my circumstances couldn't possibly be all there was. I just had this acute sense that there had to be more. And certainly through reading books, that was a, tr- a true window into other worlds that ultimately saved me. I think it just made me hold on. I remember just feeling like I just have to hold on. It seemed like circumstances I would eventually just have to age out of. You know, I would have to.
1: You had an that adult. awareness
2: as a kid. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I can just hold on, and and I think it frightened me to see the adults in my life behaving in this way. And you know what's funny is, in retrospect, I look back and all the friendships, the close friendships I made growing up, were with um, girls that had these you know, relatively stable home lives. And I would go to their house and I would see this other way of being that I know that shaped me. I don't know what kind of luck that was to find these families that that were such an example and such an expander for me on how family life could and maybe should be. But it helped me understand that, you know, I eventually might be able to create my own circumstances. And and that was really important.
1: I I frequently say that uh, there's no comparison between a a bad, you know, difficult childhood where where you're exposed to something other than that, a supportive force Mm -hmm. other than that, and a childhood where you're not. That um, if you if you can see, oh, there are other ways and there's a comparison, right? This is not what's what I'm going through is not what everybody has. I think it makes such a huge difference. That I think that's what you're talking about, isn't it?
2: Huge, huge difference. And I also, you know, after my mom left, I was raised by my grandparents who did provide a really safe environment for me in most ways and in a nurturing place where I was able to feel that normalcy, have a routine, you know, be in a, a clean environment, things like that are just so important for a child to have structure. And I definitely got structure in their household. And I think that I had sort of a dual upbringing where I got really these two different worlds. So Mm. there was a lot of outside influences.
1: Let's let people hear a bit of the book. Uh, This, what I'd love you to, to share is really the introduction to the, the book, the, right at the beginning, um, because we're kind of plunged right away into this, I mean, for me, kind of an alternative universe, although I do think about people that are in these kind of cult experiences and what what pulls them in and keeps them in. Um, so I was thinking about that a lot as I was reading, but uh, I'd love people to hear a little bit of the, of the voice of the book. Yeah.
2: Yes. So this is the first page, um, starting with chapter one. To have an assignment, Pastor Vern said, you had to be a woman of blood. You had to be a man of deep voice in Adam's apple, and you should never reveal your assignment to another soul, for assignments were a holy bargaining between you and your pastor and God himself. To speak of them directly would be to mar God's voice, turn the supernatural human and ruin it. So not even my own mother could tell me what her assignment was that unseasonably warm winter wouldn't tell me months into it when spring lifted up more dry heat around us and everything twisted and changed forever. I longed to know where she went when she left our apartment each morning, returning in the evening, flushed skin, a bit more peeled back each time. I imagined her proselytizing to the vagrant, sleeping on rags in the fields at the edge of town combing the women's mud-baked hair, holding their hands, and exercising evil from their hearts. I imagined her floating above our beloved town of peaches, dropping god-glitter over us like an angel, summoning the rain to cure our droughted fields. I imagined all these things with a burn of jealousy, for I had not received my woman's blessing yet, the rush of blood between my legs that would signify me as useful i just turned 14 but was still a bored, chested child in the eyes of God and Pastor Vern. And so I prayed day and night for the blood to come to me in a river to flood the bed I shared with my mother. Then I would be ready. I could have an
1: assignment too. The way that isolation and secrecy and um, uh, someone telling you, all the gifts will come to you if you just do what I say um, is so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And it it's so
2: attractive, especially for a child like Lacey May, who's really grown up in such an unstable environment, who is looking for answers, who really wants her mom to change and to be different and be stable. And, and in comes this man who has all of these promises and, and it is good for a time. There is a span of time where this pastor's influence on the town does feel really positive and And the people feel that they have, like we were talking about, a purpose, a higher purpose in life. Um, and so she feels very attached to him and to these ideas.
1: And you can see how that happens. I mean, I'm, I've, I've been thinking about the, that so much in this time when we're all... We've all lost the lives we had before. It's kind of like a a human, the human family is in drought, you know, we're we're all in our little spaces uh, with COVID. Well, not all of us, but most of us Mm -hmm. Um, and and kind of trying to piece it together. And if you already have vulnerabilities uh, and then a time like that comes along, you're looking for a savior, I imagine. Absolutely.
2: And this town that they're living in, their access to the outside world, you know, they're impoverished. They don't, Fresno to them is the big city. It's not a place they go. There's not a lot of outside influence. And so they really are in this intense isolation. And then the cult of this church really creates even more isolation. I wanted that to be a claustrophobic environment to kind of really put these people to the test and really take them to that edge um, of tension really.
1: I I wondered, I mean, I think there was some reference in the book to maybe Lacey May feeling responsible uh, somehow as if she had caused her mother leaving and i wonder if you if that's true if that's the way you see it and also if you ever experienced that um because children of course put themselves in the middle of 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 the world and and if things are wrong they tend to interpret it as something wrong with them but i wonder if that was your experience
2: yeah i mean for Lacey may i think she's running the gamut of all kinds of possible answers to how this could have happened. That's one of the driving questions of the book. That's the driving question of her life really is to understand what happened here. You know, how did my mother leave me? It seems like the last thing she could have ever expected, even though a lot of signs maybe externally were pointing to her mother doing something drastic or, um, or, or damaging, but, but still the shock of that was so great for her. Um, so she is looking for those answers and of course she's absorbing, you know, what ways could I have done something differently? What could I have done to prevent this? What could I have done to make my mother happy again? I think she carries a lot of responsibility internally for the ways in which her mother's quote unquote sadness, she could never relieve it. Um, she could never cure her mother's alcoholism. And, and there is some idea that she's, kind of wondering what why not why why wasn't i enough and certainly that question was such a huge question for me growing up you know when my mom left i desperately wanted to know why and and what was wrong with me why wasn't i enough for my parents to get their act together you know yes <laughs> Just, why not why wasn't that enough and It's interesting because when I moved in with my grandparents, immediately, I became a regular member of their church. I was going every week. I was very involved. Suddenly, this was like such an overnight difference. And I was very comforted by the idea of God, very comforted of this father-like figure, this structure, these rules. I loved rules. I wanted them so bad. And there was all of that and more at church. And so I took to it really quickly. But I remember feeling distinctly that there was something I had done wrong. And that is why God had given me this situation. Mm -hmm. There was no other way I could understand the situation. And I think maybe even subconsciously or consciously, I just kind of started this deep belief about myself that, other kids were better or different, and they got more rewards. You know, it's that idea of conditional yes. love where God is rewarding me for my behavior, and I must have done something wrong. Um, let's,
1: let's take yeah. a break and come back to that, because I don't want to shortchange the discussion of how religion plays into <laughs> how kids interpret their experience, because I, uh, I have lots of thoughts on that, and I want to hear yours. Yeah. So. So, listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to uh, follow me, like me, do all that stuff. And also, there's a link to my my novel, An Ocean Between Them, that you can you can learn more about it. And to find Chelsea Beaker, you can go to chelseabeaker.com, which is c h e l s e a b i e k e r dot com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice
0: America Health and Wellness channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health
2: or
1: click the like button under the player today.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at WeatheringGrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Chelsea Beaker, the author of of the novel *Godshot*, and Chelsea. Before the break, we were beginning to talk about the background um, religious influence. Obviously, it's a it's an incredibly um, powerful negative influence in your book, and maybe a milder, but someone still negative influence, you know, in your in your life. <laughs> um, In your actual life but that difference between religion that says we're all god's creatures we're all loved of god and religion that says we're sinners that need to be fixed Um, and i don't know where on the spectrum your childhood church ran but um, it sounds as if there was some sense that you must have done something wrong You know,
2: yeah. I think in two, it's hard to know, was it really coming directly from whatever messages they were putting out or was it the way that I was hearing them because of my experiences? Mm. And I think as a child, I was, again, looking for answers. I wanted to know how this could have happened. And so my brain was hungry for anything I could make sense of things with. And, And the easiest way to make sense was that I you know in some way had fallen short now i remember getting messages of you know the all loving god that that wonderful promise all of that i think some of that was positive for me this idea of unconditional love but perhaps i wasn't connecting the dots in terms of how sin fell into that and how mm. you know and then when you get older there's bigger questions and you know, but growing up, my church experience was certainly not to the heightened experience of what they're going through in the book. It was pretty, it was probably pretty mild. I think it was just your average, like big box Baptist church that you would find anywhere in any suburb in America. Um, There were certainly things that happened that were awful, but, but again, I think that that's humans. I mean, that's you're sure. going to find that in any organization. So it is interesting. I do. I remember mainly, you know, the church almost being avoidant in talking about difficult things, and I think that bred a lot of shame for me, where mm-hmm. no one in my life was really having those hard conversations with me. And looking back, I think that that avoiding them probably out of hoping to not upset me really just created a lot of confusion and then later shame. So
1: that's, all that's interesting, because I've noticed that religion does not always help with grief mm. uh, that, um, you know, there's sometimes there's a sense that if we're really faithful, we should be able to skip it mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, know, and not dive into the the terrible pain of grief, which is, of course, big part of the experience. I think I hear that in in what you're saying, you know, kind of, let's just not talk about it. And, you know, wait for heaven. And uh, particularly many churches that will say, if somebody dies, um, we can't be sad, they're they're they've gone to glory They you know, it's Mm -hmm. it's a positive, Um, maybe for them, but not necessarily for a grieving person. No, Uh, that that would be an example.
2: Yeah, it totally looks away from the reality of the natural human emotion that you would have that goes along with a loss like that. And I think cumulatively for me, I was housing so much anger that had nowhere to go. I was so incredibly angry and you know sad, but mm-hmm. but what's under the anger was the sadness, but there was also just this incredible yeah, anger and and anger that followed me into adulthood that I've you know, in the past few years, really had to take a very direct look at releasing that and realizing at first admitting that I've held on to it for a really long time. And I just, I don't know, I I think as an adult, at least the approach I take with my kids, I'm definitely not a perfect parent in any way, but I try to just name the thing. I try to just say the thing out loud. I try to name the tension, name the conflict. We just talk about it because otherwise where it doesn't just evaporate, it goes somewhere. For me, I I feel that it goes into the body and the body houses all of that trauma and all those emotions that are never
1: unleashed. Becomes hardwired. Yes. Yes. And just a note to go back to something we were talking about earlier. I don't, I don't think losses where someone doesn't die Uh, I I don't consider them to necessarily be easier in any way because um, there's you know there's betrayal involved Mm -hmm. which to me regret and betrayal make grief a lot harder actually Um, if someone dies they haven't intentionally left us kids can get confused about that but you know yeah uh, but it's it's just a, a plain fact that most death doesn't isn't intentional. Um, so I can imagine that the grief is even maybe more complicated.
2: Yeah. And it's a grief that continues to deepen because if you are still in relationship with that person in any capacity, you know, you're dealing with the loss of them out of your life, the grief there, but then you're also dealing with the sporadic um continuing of trauma and betrayal as the years go on which i've experienced with my parents and um yes, it's in been fact, very difficult
1: in fact another part of that article is your uh your mother planning to visit you and mm. and then not coming yeah uh, which which to me would be very re-traumatizing
2: Yes, it definitely was. It was, yeah. Yeah, and it again, like, it was surprising to me in the moment, even though logically I knew that that was a trademark and that that was very likely to happen, it kind of didn't matter that I knew. It's like when it happened, that fresh disappointment, that childhood sadness was right there. It was, it didn't abide by the logic, you know, because I think my husband, bless him, was kind of like, well, we kind of figured that might happen. And almost in this way of like, well, you know, you can't be feeling that surprised or that sad because we kind of knew, but I did. And, and I think it's like, it's all those shoulds. It's like, Oh, we should be feeling a certain way because of X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't account for how we really feel. And the way that yes, we can be re-traumatized when those things happen. I felt all the same disappointment and loss that I had had felt, when she first left me all over again, you know, we, we were, we try to hope and then that can be really hard.
1: You know uh, it reminds me of um, one of my primary teachers, Stephen Levine, and, and he would say, grief, grief will not go away when you're in a moment of grief. It will be just as intense. It'll be just as deep. You will feel it just as, as uh, as overwhelmingly but it'll happen less often and you can go forward from it more easily over time Mm. and that's sort of what you're talking about you you retouched that moment of deep loss and that's not logical that's (laughs) that's kind of um hardwired in those are really wise words you're so right about that I, that certainly applies to um, moments where I, uh, you know retouch the loss of my wife, for instance. Mm. If I see someone who looks very much like her unexpectedly, or you know, even though I'm remarried happily and all of that, I, I just think that's a truism about grief that it's it's in us. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe that's means we're human uh, we're full humans. We have that range. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's have you share a little bit more from the book, if you would. And maybe you can tell us where we are a bit. um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I'll read from a section we're still kind of in the front section of the book. um, But this is kind of a, a flashback that Lacey May is having about her mother and sort of touching on some of that responsibility and disappointment that, we, that Cheryl and I were just talking about. When my mother woke up, we raced out to check on the melons, to pet and encourage them, but someone had smashed them all, ripped them from our, their vines, and thrown them against the sidewalk. Their pink insides reeked a sickening perfume. She let me miss school, and we sat on the steps while she drank brandy out of one of my old plastic baby bottles, waiting for the killer to return to the scene. But the killer was in the apartment. It was clear as day that Sapphire Earrings was responsible, but she didn't seem to understand that at all. I'm sad sometimes, she'd said to me as the sun had left us. How I'd wanted to fix it for her, how I wanted the world to be good enough so she wouldn't have to feel its rough edges. If someone could just see her when she was at her best, the way she was in the morning back then, getting ready for the day, dancing and singing, the soft dander of her cheek, the way her neck looked when she tilted it back in the car and sang Great American Cowboy along with the Sons of the San Joaquin. I didn't know what to say to fix it, to make her eyes go clear, to make her steps sure and straight, her breath her own without the bite of alcohol on it. I'm hungry, I said instead, and she sighed, went back inside and got drunk enough for the sadness to reset itself to happiness. Only to go back to sadness again.
1: I I feel that so captures living with an alcoholic parent too. Mm. You know this thing that makes makes the person a stranger, um, but it seems like it's them. <laughs> but but right. in in a way it isn't, is it?
2: It's not, and that was so much a part of the grief for me was that my mom did seem to have these two identities and the one that was sober and the one that was at her best was so wonderful. And, and that makes the loss even worse because I'd like it to be easier to be like, Oh, she was just an awful woman. I'm glad she <laughs> left or something, you know, that would be so easy. But in fact, she was an amazing woman in so many ways. And she was so smart and so charismatic and. And I could see all the ways in which we could have had a really amazing relationship and maybe a great life together. And so the loss of that possibility feels like it carries a tremendous grief.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm assuming that she is still living now. She is. And does she know about of the book? I mean, what? How does she perceive? Um, you know, you're doing interviews, you talk about your own life, especially here, but I'm imagining other places too. Does she register that or not? How do you relate to her about that? Yeah, so she does have a copy of the book.
2: I don't think she's read it. Um, I know she wants to read it. And, you know, my mom, is not really tuned in to the internet very much. You know, she doesn't, there isn't a lot of exposure for her to any of the things I might be doing to promote the book. So I do talk about it with her. Um, We do talk about the past and I asked her, you know, a long time ago if I could write about her because I was starting to write more literally about her in nonfiction and essays and I felt that I needed that permission in a way, you know. Yes. Part of my mom's story is really that she was the victim of a lot of domestic violence. And and I've talked to her a lot about that and the ways in which me writing about our scenario or our situation could help other people. I think she likes that idea. I think, you know, she gave me her blessing to write about our life. However... You know, I don't know that she would know how it might actually feel to read any of this. I think it would be really hard. And I guess I do write it in a way where it's like I don't exactly expect her to see it. There's a little bit of freedom in that because I think I don't wish to cause her any more pain than she already has. Mm. Um, I don't. I want her to have some semblance of peace in her very unpeaceful life. Um, we have a pretty good phone relationship as it stands right now. And I actually really value it. It's been interesting since I had my daughter, we've been able to connect in a different way. And, um, and maybe just the work I've done on myself and my processing has allowed me to come to her in a different space than I used to be able to. And so currently it feels like there's more of an open dialogue than there ever has. And And my mom, her essence is very open. She likes to share. She likes to tell stories. I think she's incredibly creative. And I think that she would be really supportive of everything that I was doing. And I've told her that the book is a lot, you know, is inspired a lot from her. And and I also told her that at the end of it, there's only love in which I've ever written about my mom. There's only love behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, That is always my intention. And so, yeah, but, you know, I, at the same time, I know that my truth can help other people and I'm not going to censor myself. um, Even if it's a difficult topic, you know?
1: Yes. And that does, you were talking about making meaning, you know, the need to make meaning and that's part of that, isn't it? Telling the truth it's yeah it's hard to create meaning if you're not telling the truth let's take another break and come back to that and listeners again you can go to the good grief host page for links to everything that i do or my website weatheringgrief.com and to find chelsea beaker go to chelseabeaker.com c-h-e-l-s-e-a-b-i-e-k-e-r.com back after the break
2: a.m.
1: Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening
0: to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Chelsea Beaker, author of the novel Godshot, and... Chelsea, before the break, um, you know, we were kind of talking about redemption in a way, and that you feel that um, you're making something that's of service to people um, by telling your story, which uh, I hear a lot, honestly, you know, these six and a half years, I've been talking every week with people who have loss and then do something that refers to it later, right? um that's just almost universal that at some point in in our own coming to terms with a loss we want to give something and i think i'm hearing that in what you're what you're saying
2: yeah definitely i mean i survived by the stories of others growing up i it was the way i was making sense of my reality was through reading other people's stories and i remember even as a child thinking If I could somehow contribute something like this, life would be worth it. Um, I was so amazed that there could be this human exchange in that way. And that's still how I am getting through life, you know, through this quarantine. I'm reading all the time. I want to be transported and I want to encounter emotional situations through other perspectives. That's how Mm -hmm. I grow and that's how I can gain deeper perspective on my own life. So it is truly an honor to have anyone read my work and connect with it in some way.
1: So you're bringing up something very interesting there, which is that um, I have, I've noticed that people who have gone through something, you know, a very major loss. And have gotten to the place where something, they feel something, they've had the feelings and something has come out of it. The people I know in that category seem to have a different relationship to this quarantine time. Uh, You know, kind of looking for how it can grow them in some way, Uh, which is kind of like having a head start. Obviously, not true of everybody because not everybody has that. What I consider a privilege to to have made something out of their losses, but the people that have that I work with are doing actually better than some other people who have had. Um, obviously, every human has struggles, but have had less less significant struggles or less less ripping, I guess. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think that when you experience something like that, you know, you're, you've are you recorded into you that you've gotten through it once. There's almost this sort of remembering where I know that the way I get through things is to, like I have tools. I have this whole toolbox that I've assembled over the years of I, things that I know will help me. And also there's always been a hunger... To grow more, to go deeper, to uncover new layers, and to heal. I really want to heal. I want to continue my healing forever. I know it's a lifelong experience. And I think when faced with this idea of lockdown or of the quarantine, you know, I know if I don't kind of try to find new lenses to see it through, that it will ultimately not. Be a time that serves me. And my highest self wants it to be a time that I can do something with it. Not that I'm saying that people need to be productive right now, because I don't think that's it. It's more, it's more the mindset and the desire to find some semblance of sanity and beauty and, and resilience, even in the face of this. In order to be more productive, possibly to help others, or you know, to be there for yes. our families in different ways, it's not just about us. It's it's broader, and and I think feeding into an energy of healing versus fear is is important, even on the micro individual level.
1: One thing that I've been thinking about a lot in that regard is just that I can't remember uh, any event in my lifetime, and and it's been longer than yours. I'm sixty six. I can't think of one event that virtually affected everyone in the on the planet in some way. Not that we've been aware of, you know, and obviously we're in the same ocean, not the same boat. (laughs) The ways that it affects us are very unique and individual. And, you know, there's impacts of oppression and everything else. But we are all impacted by each other. We're we're all. we're a pretty small world at this point. People get on airplanes and carry whatever they got there over here, and you know right it's, uh, it's it's been a really visceral visceral experience of that for me
2: yeah absolutely it I like the metaphor you used about the ocean and not in the same boat because yeah i mean i certain i don't think anyone can remember something that was so unifying in history um you know, unless you maybe were alive in 1918 for the Spanish flu pandemic, but which some people are still around from that. But, you know, otherwise there, we haven't experienced something on this global level like this. So,
1: and there wasn't as much, uh, you know, we're hearing stories. uh, We, I know all about what's going on in New Zealand right right you know i, I mean, know that just isn't what was going on in 1918
2: no they didn't, didn't have Zoom
1: experience yes. Right? no
2: yes yeah oh i can't imagine yeah it's interesting we we are exposed to so much more now so it is truly much more of a global experience
1: and we can still you and i can be here talking that's well, you which know. is such a beautiful thing like it's it's amazing i really appreciate it um I I know that there's a couple of things that you've kind of going back to what we were talking about right before this of sharing your experience, a couple of things you've written directly about your experience, I think it would be worthwhile for people to know how to find those things. Yeah. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about it.
2: Sure, yes. Um I published an essay on catapult in 2017. And that was about, it's kind of a blending of my upbringing, my mother, ideas of women and sex and violence, and also the murder of my aunt, which happened in the 70s in Fresno. Um, She was the first case of spousal rape in the county. And I kind of touch on that a little bit in that essay. And that was really my first foray into publishing anything directly personal And it was a really scary experience, and I didn't know if I even wanted to. And the feedback that I got from readers from that was so beautiful, and so many people could relate. So it opened the door a little bit for me to be more willing to put myself out there like that. And my two recent essays that have come out since the book was out, the one that you mentioned earlier in our interview on Lit Hub about my mother... And then I had another one about my father on the Paris review daily. Um, And that was the first time I've ever written about him. And so that was also really scary. But each time it's been met with a chorus of people saying, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And so there's a lot of healing in that. And and yeah, it's hard to do that. It's hard to be exposed in that way. But it also feels really vital. And I think like we were talking about with telling the truth, there is a lot of power in the truth. And of course, the truth is subjective. That's my truth. I don't know what the people (laughs) in those essays would think about it. But um, regardless, that that one singular truth, I think, is important. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And and that sense of service in it, too. Because I do think, uh, you know, uh, there's a there's a Brene Brown, um, the the um, vulnerability expert. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, it, something she talks about: uh, it's scary to be in the arena, but you don't want to be in the bleachers. You know, you <laughs> you want to be actually in in yourself and doing your life, not just watching. Um, but yes, it can be can be frightening. So we're getting close to the end. Maybe you can share just one more little piece of uh, from the book um, before we're before we have to close. Yeah,
2: so I'll read a part from this is after the mother leaves, and Lacey May is brought back to their apartment to go through her mother's things. and she's kind of assessing the space through this lens of her shock and her loss. It was filthy. My mother stopped cleaning after she'd taken up assignment, and we lived amid our trash. I only saw it clearly then, though. The blonde hairs balled up in the corners of each room, the trash overflowing out of the kitchen to the living room, the brown of the toilet bowl, the dishes in the sink, and how once they were dirty, they were dead to us. We just didn't use that dish anymore. Now, though, a smell had taken hold. My mother's iceberg lettuce rotting on the countertop, the decay of stuck macaroni and cheese in a dish cans left open and waiting for nothing. It was strange. I could not remember eating with my mother, only the image of her leaning over the sink, picking at things. Never cooking, just opening cans and handing them to me. Once she said to be careful not to cut myself on the sharp raw tin, and it felt like a kind of care. I loved spam and sardines and could imagine that she was cooking up delicacies, but now seeing the piles of cans on the floor, I felt embarrassed for us.
1: You know, I want to say before we end our conversation that I don't want to give away anything about the the story, but I found it deeply redeeming.
2: Thank you for saying that. I really hope that comes through, and I think that's a huge, huge signpost of the of the story for me.
1: Uh, you know, I was I was uh, there was a secret little worry, uh, through, through through it. Oh, my gosh! <laughs> What's gonna happen <laughs> but um but I appreciate that you didn't um, you you didn't shorthand that I really felt immersed in Lacey May's experience, and I found the story deeply redeeming. Thank you, Cheryl. so. I hope that people will go read it. That's what I hope. And also that um, you can continue to talk about, I, I just have felt so, so uh, touched today by diving into, uh, I, you know, I have guests a lot where the loss was not a death, but I feel this conversation has, um, really, uh, you've really captured some of what that experience is about, where the person is still out there somewhere, but um, unavailable to you, and, and what that feels like. So I really appreciate that.
2: Thank you. And I just want to send love to all of your listeners and anyone who's experiencing some of these feelings of grief.
1: I'm with you on that 100%. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Cheryl. I loved it. (laughs) Me too. To find Chelsea Beaker, you can go to chelseabeaker.com and find links to all her writings and um, everything about her. Next week, I'll have Lindsay Whistle Fenton to talk about her film Speaking Grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.